Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been I there. I the entertainment business. Done and that. Being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, Roger takes us inside the music business and video rentals. Yeah, remember those? He learned a few things he'll pass along. Then he's off to Las Vegas with his sister. It's more exciting than it sounds. And we end up with an appropriate gift from Billy Wilder. But first, the brick and mortar buildings that peddled the Hollywood dream look different today. Roger, as you drive down Sunset Boulevard today, there's no Tower Records. The most iconic record store in the country was on Sunset Boulevard. There's no blockbuster video store. Would you have predicted 10 or 15 years ago that those two places to buy things called records and rent things called VHS tapes and later DVDs would evaporate one day? Well, I can offer you two examples which probably won't surprise you to the fact that one of them showed my brilliance and the other one showed my stupidity. <laughs> We're 19- fair and balanced, they call okay, that. Right, exactly. Fair and balanced at Fox. Right. Right. In 1989, I spent $40 million of the shareholders' money to buy a company in Boston that my friend Bill Bergoli knew well called Strawberries Records and Tapes. It was the Tower Records of New England, and it was the main thing. And I said, oh, they're getting along very, very well just selling music. Wait till they're now selling movies on home video as because I knew the DVD was coming. It didn't come for six more years, but I knew a broadly popular form was going to replace the VHS cartridge, which had mostly been rented, not purchased. And the idea was to get the price down below $20. That was the magic thing. You could tell them it was $19.99 for a movie, which ended up eventually going to $9.99. You had a mass market. So I said, well, we're going to, once we layer on a, a video business, so I had to buy the company. We looked around the country and we found two chains that we thought were good. We wanted to have regional dominance in the area uh, so that we felt that we would not attract the tower records and, the, and the, there was one called Peaches in Atlanta that were attempting to be of a national footprint. Right. And they wouldn't go into markets where there was a very entrenched local player. So I bought something with the unbelievable name of Waxy Maxi, in, <laughs> which had, was the number one thing in the greater Washington, Baltimore area. I remember Waxy Maxi. Right. There was a Harmony Hut, too. I think yeah, Harmony was. Hut, too. There was one I tried to get called, I think, Spectres in Florida, but they, the family didn't want to sell. But whatever I paid for them, and, and I, Strawberries was the big one. I, that was $42 million, I remember that 
sadly, precisely. Um, Do you remember how many there were? Yeah, 112, 112 stores that stretched from Philadelphia to Bangor, Maine. That uh -huh. was their territory. And the man who owned it outright personally, well, 90% of it, was a convicted mobster named Morris Levy. He was called Mo by his many friends. And Morris Levy was on his way to the federal penitentiary for all kinds of shenanigans in his record company called Roulette Records, where he once, I said, Morris, did you really not pay royalties to these singers, usually black women who got bupkis, as we say in Yiddish? He said, what do you mean? I gave him a Cadillac. What are they complaining about? There was a movie called yeah, Cadillac yeah. Records. That yeah. was Morris. Oh, that was I guess. Yeah, well, he, he was roulette was his name, and it was you. Had, your chances were just as good as playing roulette when dealing with him. <laughs> but Morris, before a public company, which we of course were, could buy this and and pass SEC muster, we did a six month due diligence with Payne. Uh, not sorry. Uh, Price Waterhouse. Price Water. Or? No, no. Uh, Arthur Young was our thing. They, they later became Ernst and Young. Ernst Young. Yeah. And we looked at everything six ways from Sunday to make sure that, as Morris said, look, I got this for my kids. It's clean as a whistle, and it was a business. So a retail business doesn't give rise to criminality because. People buy, they sell, you, you pay a credit card, you pay cash, whatever. There isn't, it isn't a valuation type business where you can play games. Was it payola from the standpoint, though, that you, as a record company, had to buy space in a record store to get distribution? Or was there co-op? Or what, what well, were there, there costs? Yes. That uh, were... Obviously, obviously, we were not stupid. We would say, you want the front window, that'll cost you so much. Uh -huh. but, it, but first of all, it was a totally voluntary thing, and it was totally above board. It wasn't, it wasn't hidden. And when we were doing the due diligence, I noticed that their cost of occupancy, their leases, were very low. And somebody very smart in Boston explained to me, look, when you're a landlord, and you own a shopping center in Malden or you know, Peabody, and you're dealing with a reputed made man in the mafia or as made as a Jew can get, you don't negotiate very tough. You say, oh, is that what you want to pay? That seems reasonable. And I once said, Morris, I see that you have very low occupancy costs. I said, I don't think, you know, and we're evaluating what we're willing to pay for your company, these leases all run out, and as I renew them, I don't think I are showing up there. We're going to get the terms as favorable. I don't think I'm quite as fearsome as you are. <laughs> and he said, look, kid, I don't believe in working for the landlord. I said, well, that's an admirable philosophy. He said, but I've also noticed that your employee costs are way below the industry average. How do you get away with paying people less? I don't believe in working for the help. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was Morris. But this still looked like a desirable company to own. It you're, looked like a desirable company to, to own. You're going to have to pay people a little more. If, I didn't, if I'd heard the word Napster, which I can tell you where I was on Montgomery Street in San Francisco the minute somebody at Bank of America said, well, you're a music company. Have you heard about something called Napster? I said, no, what's that? <laughs> I found out in short order. And Napster... So this is the smart 
story or the not so smart story? <laughs> the no, money. this is the not so smart okay. story okay. because okay. I went ahead and, and bought this these two music retailers, thinking that the movie business was going to go from a rental business controlled by Blockbuster to a thing business in which retailers would have the, the big part of the action. And we were, by the way, the company that I was running was called a rack jobber. It's an inelegant right, term for right. an inelegant business, yeah. which is retailers paid you to stock their selections in highly specialized area because the guy running Walmart didn't know which music was going to be the hits and so forth, and we, we supposedly did. Uh, Again, so, to put a really fine point on it, you didn't just ship the records. You had a person come in and go, this is Credence Clearwater Revival's new album. It should be in the front at this bin, and here's what's slipping a little. Maybe it's Paul Simon. This needs, and that a person, individual, went in and did that in the stores. And who knew that what he put in in Albany was different from what he put in in, 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 in Portland, that Maine. That was a specialty. That, that was, was a specialized specialty. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we were doing something that Walmart and Kmart and Kohl's and other who are our clients couldn't do for themselves in this area. However, that was fine as long as there was a vast selection of catalog items that needed expertise. As the business got more and more dominated by the 10 hits, you didn't need an expert to tell you what the 10 hits were. You right. needed to pay five bucks for a billboard. And so that told you what the hits were. You say, okay, I've got 90% of the business. You, you worry about the 10%. And uh, I only once had to go to, um, what's the town in Arkansas where Walmart? Little Rock? No. Oh, or, oh, oh the Walmart town. The yeah, Walmart yeah, yeah. town, I forget the name of it. Um, and I would say, other than being in the waiting station for Auschwitz, I've never seen a more depressing place. There were these giant bullpens where 8,000 Willie Lomans were sitting there with their little bag of, of supplies hoping to make the big hit of selling Walmart, uh, and they were, you were not allowed to have any human contact. You know, God forbid you should invite them to lunch or dinner. Absolutely didn't happen. Couldn't happen. By the way, listeners who are keeping tabs on it, uh, we are up to the 11th Auschwitz uh, reference in the podcast series. Well, so it's a not. good shorthand. <laughs> it's a way, it right. makes a point. Right, okay. Right. Well, I don't... So uh, Mo sells you strawberry... Strawberries, records, and tapes. And it comes down at the last moment to a closing. His law firm in Boston was Choate Hall and Stewart, the starchiest old line Boston law firm there is. Now, why did they have a client like Morris? They had a deal with him that's very similar to the way lawyers deal with Donald Trump. You do not get our work until you pay for it. We don't, we don't trust you to pay, and there would be a thing where it'd have to be a closing, and at the closing, the signature of the law firm was the key, the, the endorsement, and I'm sitting in a conference room at uh, their offices in Boston when we are coming up against the 3 p.m. Friday deadline to wire Morris $42 million into his personal bank account. And Are you sitting in a room with Mo and is he like, where's Oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. And I said, Morris, you know, 
I thought we had ironed all this out, but I see here there's about a $30,000 tax bill. It is absolutely the statement of the deal. Each person pays his taxes on each side until the closing, then we take over. But we're not gonna pay your 30. Well, you see, that was something I paid, but it benefits you because you won't have to pay it later. I said, <laughs> well, I have two things to say to you. Thank you, but that's it, that's the deal. We're gonna stick by the deal. And he said, I don't believe you're gonna blow a $40 million deal over 40,000. I said, you know what? I don't believe you will. <laughs> I said, so we're gonna sit here until you understand that a deal's a deal. Wow. I said, you're not dealing with some of the people you know with broken noses. You're dealing with a guy who knows he's no near, near as tough as you, so I have to be at least as smart. You know, people listening to this, and I've been sitting here listening to this too, you're pretty blunt with this guy when you find out exactly what he is and who, where he's coming totally, from. Totally, because I knew that I wasn't the kind of person who was in danger from him. I knew that he had enough sense of how the world worked that he wasn't going to take on the CEO of a public company who was ready to write a check to him for $42 million. And at one point, it came out that well, after Jose Menendez was murdered, which took place three months after the closing of buying strawberries, the FBI, now looking into the possibility of how this worked, showed me, I listened to, audio tapes of conversations between Carlo Gambino and Morris Levy, and they're trying to find out if possibly the strawberries deal had anything to do with Jose being shotgunned to death three months later. Congratulations right. on that tie-in. And yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> uh, can, can you imagine how thrilled I am when I hear from the FBI that, here's the tape, Menendez, I didn't have any problem with him. I rarely dealt with him. It was that asshole Smith I couldn't stand. <laughs> And that was one of my finest moments. I said, this is praise like none other. <laughs> um, we had also, when we went to buy the company, Morris said, I, well, I own 90% of it. I said, oh, who owns the other 10%? Gloria Esposito. Well, it turns out that Gloria Esposito was the mistress of the person you just mentioned. Uh, oh, the Ga Carlos, Carlos Gambino. Gambino. Carlos Gambino. Oh. I said, no, no, we're not dealing with Gloria Esposito you figure out a way to get her out of the picture and come to us owning 100% or there's no deal. And Oh, man. I want, what river I, did she show up in? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they just bought... Uh, no, no, they, uh, she was the mistress, the, the mistress of the guy. Yeah, okay, right. And I'll tell you, I think... I'm maybe repeating a story I've already told, but it's a good story, bears repeating. It's 1979 or so... I am sitting at the, in a cabana at the Beverly Hills Hotel, relaxing uh, shortly after business hours, and with one of my associates, a lovely Italian-American guy, Guy Salvatore. His name was Guy as well as being a guy. And he spots across the pool the most drop-dead gorgeous woman we've ever seen. He says, look at that, is that something? I said, oh yeah, I know her. He said, you know her? Really? Tell me, who is she? I said, oh, she's so-and-so's, and mentioned some senior studio executives, she's so-and-so's mistress. And Guy says, oh, if only she were his wife. 
<laughs> I'd have a chance. <laughs> I'd have great. a chance. Yes. What a great one. I mean, yeah. Right. You don't have to be clever if you can remember other people's cleverness. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and remember that. Right. right. Well, you know what the French call l'esprit de l'escalier? The wit of the staircase. It's the thought you have after you left the room and were walking up the staircase and you said, oh, I should have said such and such. Right. And, uh, that was a Seinfeld episode I always wanted to write where George isn't funny in the room, but five minutes later he runs back in and goes, when you said this, if I had said that, <laughs> right. it's such a Costanza kind of a thing. Well, I never watched Seinfeld. No? Uh, because I took it at its word. They said it's a show about nothing. I said, I'm not interested in nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't a podcast about nothing. It's a rich, full life that uh, at 80, may I say? Has, you may, you may been... say it. I, I, I am, my wife says, why do you tell everyone you're 80? I said, so they can tell me I don't look it. <laughs> <laughs> or in this case, don't sound it. Okay. So let's talk about the good thing you did. You said you have two stories to tell. One yes. was about buying into the record business this is when, when it, it was going down. Right, right. The, so, what I, the good thing I did was, as I then realized after that, shortly after that, that I had miscalculated, we then had our largest business was this thing called rack jobbing, which we did for Walmarts and Kohl's and so forth. And there had been three companies in the industry. The biggest one was Pickwick. It had been sold to American Can, which once was a major American company, hard to believe. And it immediately closed it down and said, oh, it's a mistake, we never should have bought it. So now we're two companies, us, number two, and number one, a company called Handelman. And this I, is in the jobber business. In the job, in the, the going, jobber, the in business. The going of, to the stores and, and putting the and, merchandise and, and on put the in shelves. Their, their videos and their music because these were specialty things that the average Walmart manager couldn't figure out. And so that was our business, and I saw the handwriting was on the wall. This is going to go away. So I said, we have to sell the company. And they said, to whom? No one, no one who's not in the business is going to voluntarily go into it. I said, yes, but Handelman is in the business, and there's very few number ones who can resist the chance to buy number two and increase market share. And I had been in New York and gone, as I often do, I go, whenever I'm in the city, I go to the theater once or twice a week. And I had seen a play called Other People's Money, starring Danny DeVito. Right. Danny DeVito in it plays a vulgar, Wall Street kind of operator of a, of a low-rent sort, typecasting. And at one point he says, you want to know the quickest way to go broke? Increase your market share in a declining business. Hmm. And it was Danny DeVito who made me realize we've got to get out of this business. <laughs> I mean, and again, since I'm sufficiently frank about my mistakes and failures, I will be a little frank about my capabilities, which is to pick up on something that's seemingly totally extraneous, a line in a play with Danny DeVito, and say, there's, there's wisdom there that I have to apply to my life, business, or personal life. And that was that we got to get out of this business. So I sit down with, at that point, my then boss, because he was still quite alive, Jose Menendez, and he said, well, Roger, uh, I don't think the, SEC, the Justice Department would let us, number two, let us be bought by number one. I said, well, I looked into this and I talked to a lawyer who does antitrust work and we can qualify under the failing company doctrine, 
we can say that if we don't get sold, we're going to simply go out of business, people will lose their jobs, etc. And that was indeed what happened. And obviously the negotiation over price, everyone knows the word monopoly. Very few people know the word monopsony. A monopsony is a world in which there's only one buyer, not one seller. And the classic example is when the Defense Department is buying fighter jets. Right. Only place to sell it. Right. Not, maybe, maybe South Africa or something like that, mm -hmm. but that's about it. And so in, a, in this situation, you have very little bargaining power. And we knew that, and I said, uh, we're going to go in there, and I'm going to try and be as you know bold as I can in saying, look, you know, we're perfectly happy keeping it, and we think there's you know it's maybe slow growth, but there's real growth ahead, et cetera. And I'm going to end up finding out you know what they're willing to pay, which turned out to be twenty five million dollars for something we had on the books at forty five, which was an acceptable mm -hmm. hit in, in the P and L. And Jose said, well. Look, I think we'd better go into this negotiation together. He said, here's my idea, Roger. I'll play the tough cop and you play the nice cop. I said, Jose, it would hardly work the other way around. <laughs> uh, as again, this is my theory. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So the ability to get away with smart-ass remarks, I will tell you, the sweetest thing my wonderful wife has ever said to me came when we'd been married only about five years and some very close friends of hers that I'd just recently gotten to know were visiting. And I made one of my smart-ass remarks. And, and this guy Bill says, Roger, haven't you learned by now that nobody loves a smart-ass? In a very light voice, my wife says, I do. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of think I married somebody just like that. Yeah, but some yeah. days it gets me in trouble. So that. So you so, and Menendez so go me to Menendez and I said Handelman. You're. I'll be the nice cop, and so and we ended up getting twenty five million more than we would have gotten two years later. That's how I would describe <laughs> the price we got, um, and they were ended up being the one company in the business until they too went out of it because there was no business. It just disappeared. It didn't, wasn't needed. And again, that was because Amazon hadn't come on the, the scene yet. But if people wanted to buy a video, they didn't go to Walmart. They went to Blockbuster because right. they were the ones who had the huge selection. And that was the you know, selection. They, there was a very, very smart person in the early days of the internet called Chris, can't go with his name, who came up with the long tail theory. The long tail theory says that there are businesses in which you succeed by offering the most variety of choices, the long tail. And the internet made it possible. A store could only stock so much. But a website could stock an infinite number of things. And, and I hesitate to say this because my heart is with the small merchant on Main Street. My body is with Amazon where I can buy anything I want at 2 in the morning without the least bit of trouble and know that I'm going to have it within 18 hours. Right. And buy it at the cheapest price. Right. Now, the only I just recently went against that because I went into the very lovely new hemp store on Main Street here in Sac Harbor and bought my first legal pot ever. And I took it last night and it 
far as I could tell, it had no effect. I'm going to try two tonight. Okay. <laughs> we'll keep us posted on yeah. that. <laughs> well, my wife then wanted me to smoke pot because it said it made it made me even sillier. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's by the way. She's a very good Gracie Allen to my... Uh, We're getting that sense to your George Burns. George right. Burns, thank you. I couldn't tell him his name. George Burns, I attended his 95th birthday concert. And it came on a night I had... My sister, who had been in the entertainment business much longer than I, having her own very successful talent agency in New York and L.A., I'm now... We're at the, for the first time, we're both living in L.A., and it is 19... 92 because it was her 50th birthday and she's she is not george burns agent no no her no, okay. no no she's the agent for kathy bates brian dennehy uh a whole raft of english stars and things that she had a london office for years and she was known as the actor's agent ah. she did my father once said to her why don't you sign charlie bronson my sister said, "Are you kidding? It would destroy the agency. We're not. We're known for talent, not for movie stars." And 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 she was also the agent for Jack Palance, the one-arm push-up uh, at the Oscars. Who, right. Well, that right. came when she took him on. His career was at a very low ebb. He didn't have much of a career, and she really revived it, including getting him cast in City Slickers and winning the Oscars. At which he, and by totally by himself, came up with the idea fearing that people thought he was too old for various parts to do on, <laughs> on national television before 80 million people one-arm push-ups. That was great. Well, as, one, as of someone who can't do two-arm push-ups, I was truly impressed. <laughs> uh, and by the way, his daughter, Holly, a lovely woman, and I are friends to this day. And um, I think that my sister's ability with talent stemmed from the fact that she had such deep respect for talent. She thought their 90% was worth a lot more than her 10%. <laughs> Most agents do not have that view. Right. They think of talent as kind of interchangeable. And um, So you take her to... I take her to... So we go to Las Vegas. I said, Susan... Oh, that's where... Oh, sorry. I said, wait a minute. You've been in the entertainment business for 30 years and you've never been to Las Vegas? I said, I didn't think it was my kind of place. And... Uh, I didn't want to go alone, certainly, and, and, and the men I knew in my, wouldn't have thought of Las Vegas as our kind of place either. I said, your brother will take you, and I will take you for your 50th birthday to Las Vegas like it has never been. I call Steve Ross's office. He's still alive at this point, just barely. It turned out he died shortly thereafter. And I said to his secretary, can you arrange for a really, at that point, the, the top uh, hotel had gone from being Caesar's Palace to being... Yeah, the Venetian or, or one of the... Uh, the, the Bellagio. Bellagio. Thank right. you, Bellagio. And they said, don't worry, we'll get you the great suite, etc. We get there, and I have arranged for us to go to the 9 o'clock show at Caesar's Palace for the 95th birthday concert of George Burns. My sister, when we arrive at the hotel, and it wasn't the Bellagio, it was wherever those ridiculous white tigers were and the two German guys. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, not the, not the Venetian, no. but the, uh, well, it doesn't we, matter. We can, right. Fill, right, we can fill in the blanks. Should, uh, be, should have been Circus Circus, but yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't, but it wasn't right. 
And so Susan said, oh, I've always wanted to see uh, Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. I said, tell me, what is it about mangy tigers and slightly weird German dudes that you want to see? I said, that sounds to me like perfectly awful. She said, no, no, I'd love it. I said, well, do they have an early show? Yeah, they have one at 7 o'clock. I said, we'll go to that, and then we'll go to George Burns. She calls down and says, calls down and turns to me and says, it's completely sold out. There's no chance of getting in, they tell me. I said, would you like to go? She said, yes. I said, sit right here. I called downstairs. I said, could you give me the credit manager at the casino? They turned me, they handed me over. I said, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry, but before I left LA, I didn't have time to establish credit, and I need to know, could you cash my $5,000 check? They said, well, of course, you have proper identification. We know that, Mr. Smith, et cetera. You come well recommended, of course. I said, fine, how would you like that? I said, in $100 chips, please. Okay, I said, the, the casino manager will meet you with your chips. I go there, I get this basket of chips, and I say to him, oh, by the way, my wife, because I didn't want to say my sister, that sounded so wimpy. I said, my wife... Your name's Smith already, it's suspicious. Yes, exactly. Well, a f friend of mine was once named, who was named John Smith and married a woman named Mar Mary during World <laughs> War II. They checked into the Commodore Hotel and the, guy, the bellman goes, John and Mary Smith, that's a hot one. <laughs> so anyway, the credit manager meets me with the chips and... and Anything, Mr. Smith. It, what, what would you like? I said, oh, my wife was so set on seeing Siegfried and Roy, we only go to the... Don't give it a thought. You will have two lovely ringside seats. So I go, <laughs> go and I wait, I wait while he's watching me, and I play blackjack with $100 chips. After I've lost two chips, he's out of sight. I scoop them up. I run over to the cage, get my $4,800, fly back to L.A. and put it in the bank before the check bounces. <laughs> now, my wife is such, my lovely, wonderful wife is the most honest human Your being. real wife, not your sister. My real right, wife, yeah. actually. My real wife, Terry, is so honest. She says, oh, sweetheart, don't tell that story. It makes you seem so bad. I said, only to women, not to men. <laughs> so you get to Siegfried and Roy. You get to Siegfried and Roy. You it, live, and so do... It's utterly appalling. It's exactly what I thought. I watch them doing whatever it is they do with these tigers, and then we go... And it's ultimately kind of sad, right? It's I mean, sad, they're, yes. And it's they're also, being fed, and they know they go through the... We don't know what happened years later when one of them got fed up with right, it. And, yes, and, 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 but and, it, it's it's an obvious... He got fed by it. Right. <laughs> I mean, we don't know if they're drugged or anything, but they're, they're probably not happy to be there, as, no. as affectionate as they appear to be to those two. But anyway, she enjoyed it. She, didn't, she enjoyed it, and I thought it was as ludicrous as I expected. And now we go across to Caesar's Palace. George Burns, 95 years old, comes out carrying a chair. He puts the chair in the middle of the stage. He sits down and he just starts to talk. And it was the most magical two, hour and a half I've ever spent being entertained. Really? It was just, he talked about Gracie, of course, he talked, but he just was so, I said, now that's show business. He held 2,000 people in the palm of his hand as he just talked. 
Still smoking a cigar at 95 nope. or no? No, he wasn't smoking a cigar. No. However, I had been aware of him because he had made a movie for uh, Warner Brothers called uh, about the three old guys going, going in style. Going in style. Thank you. They rob a bank. They rob a bank. Yeah. And I had been in the London office of Warner Brothers and I saw pinned to the bulletin board, there was a notice, a little letter from George Burns thanking the staff of Warner Brothers London office for how lovely they were on his recent publicity tour. And, and he apologized and said, I realize this note is coming to you six months after the fact. At my age, I do everything slightly slowly. If you don't believe me, just ask Trixie. <laughs> so, uh, you know, George, I love people who live up to their billing. I mean, he lived up to everything good you'd ever heard about him, and I, I don't know that anyone's ever said anything bad about him. And for her fiftieth birthday, your so for fiftieth birthday, we had the, she was she she was as entertained. She was almost as she wasn't quite as pleased as I was by George Burns, but she was a lot more pleased by Siegfried and Roy than I was. But anyway, it worked out fine, and I got back to Beverly Hills in time to put the forty-eight hundred dollars in the bank. <laughs> Hey, I know what I want to ask you. So we were talking earlier about Blockbuster. Would you have ever imagined, after that went away, that a company called Netflix could start sending DVDs to people that they would watch and send back, which now as I look back on it seems so archaic and so uh, from years before, and that that company would become a content provider I don't think you can still even rent the DVDs from them, but maybe they you just, can. They just ended the red envelope. Did business. they? Just, <laughs> literally, I think, the last month, something You like sent that. the last one back? Yeah, right. right. Uh, well, for years, I s subscribed to unlimited viewing on streaming, but one envelope a month or one envelope oh, at, that's right. out you, at that a time. That was one of the plans. One of the plans, because I always I frequently find a title that wasn't available except on DVD and right. then have them ship it. Perhaps but, a criterion. Right. Right. And so um, the fact is, you asked if I envisioned this, I will say you get not one but two bits of braggadocio on my part Can't wait. In, which, in which I was spot on. In terms of the demise of Blockbuster in the I'd say around 2006 or seven, and I was a consultant and I was hired by a hedge fund to evaluate whether Blockbuster was a sale, a buy, a short, whatever. It was selling around $20 a share. And I said, I've never seen a better short in my life. This company will be out of business within five to 10 years. And so they shorted it they called me back when the stock got to six. And they said, what should we do? I said, stay short. You want the last six points? Or if you're, if you're not greedy and the first 15 are good enough for you, fine. But it's going to zero. Take my word for it. And Blockbuster ended up, most people don't know this, it was sold to the movie industry has a history of never being able to work cooperatively. The studios going back to Jack Warner and, and Louis B. Mayer, they're always at loggerheads and they, they would rather lose money themselves than see their competitor make money. And the only exception to this was my wonderful 
super good friend, Warren Lieberfarb, who talked everybody into making the DVD a universal format without and fighting off Sony and Disney, which wanted to have their, they had the CD and they right. wanted to charge a big royalty. And he said, no, the way to make it work is we own the patents. We're not gonna take a royalty. It'll be open source. You can, everybody who wants to, I think you paid $5,000 for a license to make DVDs, that was it. And that got the, everyone to say, all right, well, as long as Warner isn't trying to make money, I'll, I'll be willing to make billions myself. <laughs> but that was the, the general attitude. I, I would say, without fear of contradiction, it was the only time that the movie industry worked all the studios collectively on the same side of the street, accepting fighting antitrust. I was just going to say, well, and also the piracy thing they all got behind, and they started yeah, they were putting wrong, those notices on the, yeah, I know, I know you, right. I said, you know, you know who's pirates? Your best customers. They just have spent as much money as they have on CDs or DVDs, and they have to, to use piracy to get more, but don't, don't go after your good customers. They, you, they're, they're your friends. Well, they would argue that. They would say they would argue that, but flooding the market in Japan and Hong Kong with people selling the movies on the street is not how they wanted people to see Transformers the first time. But I understand what you're saying is that it's a, it's a losing argument to say that uh, we should stop people from wanting to see our movies. We should understand that the people we stop are fewer in number by one-fifth of the people who... We want to buy our movies and don't want to see us as a bunch of flaming assholes who are going after 16-year-old kids for stealing from multi-billion dollar corporations. <laughs> I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to me. Uh, um, so you see Blockbuster going to zero and you're right. And but I'm what does right. Netflix now, see? Was well, Netflix look at the company and go, their business model is right, they just shouldn't be brick and mortar. People will still want to rent movies, but if we mail them to them and get rid of all the real estate, we've got a winning company. You know, it's funny. I'm not, I wasn't close enough. In, well, in the early days, I was close to them, but on the other side of the table, and they weren't telling me their strategic thinking. But to say that I believed in, in Netflix, first of all, there is the articles that I wrote for Film Comment in which I said, you think the red envelope is great? Wait till you hear about something you've never heard of called streaming. Mm -hmm. So I was early on and, and, and right there. But the fact is that Blockbuster was sold in its dying days to a consortium of movie companies that had, I forget the name, they, it was a, an attempt to be in a kind of Netflix-type business to mm -hmm. compete with Netflix. But Warner owned... 10% of Netflix. Because when they came to Warner for a license, which was critical, they, they would not have been able to be in business if they didn't have the vast library of Warner, which was more than a third, closer to a half of the whole industry. I said to Warren Lieberfarb, who's making the decisions, and I'm, I'm not sure whether he had the idea, and I said, what a great idea, or vice versa, something like that. I said, don't give them a license for free. Tell them you want an option to buy 10% of the company when it goes public at 120% of the public offering price. I said, why 120%? So they won't say yes at 100%. That it'll be a problem for them to go public 
because the underwriters will say, well, wait a minute, there's this guy's Warner, they're going to buy the exercise and they'll flood the market. So make it 120% and everyone will be happy. And um, that is what happened. Unfortunately, Warren, and I mentioned him before, in the case of the greatest example of ingratitude in the history of Hollywood, was fired after creating the concept for the DVD, shepherding it, making it happen, and earning the industry $62 billion. His reward is... A moment of silence for him. We've talked about him before. Right. That does yes, seem but, wrong. Well, he, he violated the number one rule in Hollywood, which is no one has ever been fired for incompetence. What they are fired for is ingratitude. Because the people running the studio system of yore, no longer true today, knew that they were running a scam. They had a legal scam. They were getting ludicrously well-paid, ludicrously well-entertained, expense accounts unlimited, sex on the side, everything they wanted, and getting looked up to, too. You know, gangsters don't, they, they get all the benefits, they don't get looked up to. And so Warren was so bold as to say, I think I'm entitled to a humongous reward. And they ended up giving him a stock option which they told him would be within a year or two worth $25 million. And that was assuming just that the stock stayed even. It didn't have to go up. It just had to stay even. And so he was very, very happy. And then along came something called AOL. And oh the collapse of the Time Warner stock when Jerry Levin without even consulting with Ted Turner and the rest of his board, made the merger deal with AOL. And for a few moments, the stock went, Warner stock went to an all-time high. It got to about 120. And uh, I tried to get people who had their entire net worth tied up in their Warner stock and stock options. I said, sell. They said, you think it's going down? I said, I haven't a clue. I said, I don't know. All I know is this. You've got 100% of your net worth tied up in the company you work for. God forbid you should get fired and you, your stock options won't vest and you won't have the salary. Or even if you stay there, no investment advisor would ever say, put all of your money in one stock. That's what you've done. And some of them didn't take my advice and some of them did. And unfortunately, some of the people who didn't take my advice were people I liked, and some of the people who did were people I didn't like, but that's, but that's life. <laughs> that's show business. <laughs> that's show business. Right. <laughs> so you're not sure if Netflix saw the upside of renting movies. Oh. But with, my question without, is... Without, without question, they saw it. I mean, Netflix did not put a foot wrong even when their stock cratered the one time when it went down 50% when they tried to impose some major change in the business plan and the pricing and so forth. Right. It was a mistake and Wall Street saw it and the stock went way down. And I unfortunately, having gotten people into the stock early when that happened, I said, look, things have changed. I don't know, this could work out well for them or it could work out badly, but it's not the slam dunk that I thought it was. And those who had made two or three times on their money in a two years, then sold, and they failed to make 20 or 30 times on their money, and they blamed me for getting them out of the stock. I said, no, I just said it's no longer utterly predictable that it's going to go right. up. It, it became, there's a phrase in Hollywood that's very interesting. Well, we like that movie, but we're afraid it's execution dependent. Now, what does that mean? Right. 
means you have to make a good movie. <laughs> right. they're, and they're not willing to bet on that. They want. But they would want, you have, would you have bet on them producing in house as much of their own content, or did you think they oh, were just no. going to shepherd through other? Yeah, I didn't. I did not think that they would produce their own content. Nor do I think that that is their. That's not their secret sauce. That's probably their Achilles heel. Yeah, they're buying everything. They're buying everything. And I think that the point at which the return on their $1.5 billion a year they spend on product is going to diminish and conceivably disappear. They were a middleman. They didn't make the product and they didn't have the, the brick and mortar stores. They just ship somebody else's right. product, which they, eBay. which they bought at right. one price and rented it 10 times, whatever, and that was a good business. Could it go out of business, Netflix? Uh, Someone said if you it would, take everybody on the planet and multiply it by $19 a month, they still don't make money. No, that's not true. Okay. No. They have reached, I believe, 200 million worldwide subscribers, something, I think that was the peak, maybe that's the current, the current number. But I remember when people said, oh, they'll never get to 20 million. They'll never get to 100 million. Every stage along the way, there were doubters, and the doubters were proved wrong. And one of my associates in London, when I had global media intelligence, the guy who was in charge of the internet, I was, that was one of the divisions. Al Gore? <laughs> Very unkind and unfair, but okay. And he said, oh, they're not cash flow positive. They never will be. I said, your thermometer is correct. They're not cash flow positive. Your barometer is hopelessly flawed. You're not guessing right about the future. They will become inordinately cash flow positive. Although a lot more people are in the game now, and a lot more people are, you know, we, we said when we stopped paying a cable bill, the people who did, that we weren't going to pay $150 or $200 a month anymore, and now we're streaming at $10 a month per service, and we're back up to $150. Yeah, bucks. Yeah. So there's a little fatigue, I think, on the consumer's Well, you're, you're better off than I am, because I'm paying all the streaming services and having a clue as to how to access them. I, that's, <laughs> okay, well, I, that's another podcast. I have, I have a, tech, a tech guy out here, Brett. I say, Brett, he said, just say, Alexa, give me so-and-so. I said, Alexa doesn't like me. She doesn't respond well to me. No. I think she just spoke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, exactly. Alexa, turn yourself off. We don't want to hear from you. We don't want you to turn this podcast off. It's who the fuck is Roger Smith, and uh, it's always a pleasure talking with him. More conversations uh, to continue. Uh, because we enjoy it, we're having fun. If we got a if we got a little note now from the late Steve Ross that said, "Are you still having fun?" I think it's safe to say we are. Absolutely, I think he would probably want me to have found something slightly more remunerative, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the famous last line of "Some like it hot, nobody's perfect." If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the Fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different
type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. DC, I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 